Allow me to steal from some information. One of our guests, Sarah Rosenbaum, shared with me as we were planning today's program, more than half of all U.S. hospitals, that's close to 3,000 hospitals, operate as nonprofits. The tax exemption this affords these hospitals, according to various estimates, is upwards of $12.6 billion. Now, patients and communities have surely benefited in various ways from their local hospitals' tax-exempt status, but not always in ways and in the proportions or with the priorities that everyone has believed are sufficient or appropriately targeted to have more lasting impact on a surrounding community, indeed to raise the level of the health status level of a surrounding community. Regardless of the debate, because of the Affordable Care Act, there are new IRS rules encircling this discussion and what's expected. We're moving on from the narrower community benefit requirement to community health needs assessments, and we're going to look into what this means for nonprofits hospitals and what's potentially meaningful about CHNA, as it's sometimes called in shorthand. What does it mean for population health on this edition of WIHI? And welcome to WIHI. Happy spring, everybody. WIHI is an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you biweekly and also for your later listening and convenience. You can find WIHI programs on IHI.org or on iTunes. And I'm your your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So in a way, it's hard to get excited about changes to a federal tax form known as Schedule H, but our guest on, guests on today's WIHI believe there are reasons to be excited and to welcome what's unfolding, even if the fine print is complicated and still being sorted out. And uh, it's always my fun role to also remind people that if you like tweeting and you like to send tweets, you can do so during the program or after it. Use the hashtag IHI if you don't mind in any of your tweets. That way we can bring in others on the discussion who may not be with us live right now. Um, I want to now introduce our guests, and I always want to remind folks that uh, our guests are beyond impressive always, and I can't begin to do justice to them uh, uh, during this hour-long program where we try to move along fairly quickly, but do check out um, more information about each of our guests on um, the WIHI pages and also at their own organization's web pages. So let me welcome Sarah Rosenbaum. She is the Harold and Jane Hirsch Professor of Health Law and Policy and founding chair of the Department of Health Policy at George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services. Professor Rosenbaum is the leading author of a book called Law in the American Healthcare System. It's in its second edition, I guess. It's a landmark textbook, and it provides an in-depth exploration of the interaction of American law and the U.S. healthcare system, very germane to today. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. Hello. Nice to be here. <laughs> Great. Uh, Kevin Barnett is also with us. Uh, he's a senior investigator at the Public Health Institute, which generates and promotes research, leadership, and partnerships to build capacity for strong public health policy programs, systems, and practices. For the past 20 years, Dr. Barnett has been engaged in research and field work on the charitable obligations of nonprofit hospitals. And among the many things he'll probably mention today, he currently works with the California California Endowment in their Building Healthier Communities initiative. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you, Madge. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Terrific. Great. 
And Jean Noodleman is also with us. She is Director of Community Benefit Programs for Kaiser Permanente Northern California. She is responsible for leading Kaiser Permanente's efforts to enhance the uh, health of communities through Northern California. I'm sorry, throughout Northern California through contributions and partnerships. Ms. Noodleman plays a regional and national leadership role for developing and using community health needs assessments and community health planning to inform Kaiser Permanente's community benefit portfolio. And while we've been talking about Jean Noodleman, we were looking at Kevin's photo. So, Kevin, you got a a little more um, view time there, but here's Jean now. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) everyone will get their fair shot. All right. So, and uh, I want to welcome Sarah then, Kevin and Jean. Uh, I think they're all on board with me on a first name basis and we're going to get underway. Uh, listen, I want to uh, really also remind everyone from WIHI, uh, kind of listen up, take some good notes. Uh, we welcome your questions. We'll try to get to as many of them as we can in the uh, second half of the program. Um, so thrilled that you're with us for this topic. And I also want to say um, uh, this show is kind of a part of a two-parter. Next, uh, On the next WIHI, we're also going to be talking about this issue by looking at a particular coalition in North Carolina. So, Sarah, I'm starting with you because you've kind of got to get us all on the same page of what are we talking about. Um, There are so many ways to kick off this discussion, but it does seem to make sense to start with some basic facts uh, about a new set of issues nonprofit hospitals now have to address. And so, as I was suggesting before, at one narrow level, it's this tax form, uh, but you've got to have some beef behind uh, what you're going to be talking about. Brand new world, and uh, your your job is in five minutes or less. <laughs> Walk us through what is going on. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Madge. So I'm going to park Schedule H off to one side because yeah. Schedule H is simply the form that hospitals that are not profit hospitals fill out. So okay. let me back us up okay. and note that the, um, uh, the way federal law works and state and local laws reflect federal law in this respect, um, nonprofit hospitals can qualify for tax-exempt status, which turns out to be worth a lot of money, uh, about uh, $12 billion uh, estimated by the federal government back 10 years ago now, so you can only imagine what it's worth today. Uh, uh, And in order to get their tax-exempt status, they have to comply with Internal Revenue Code rules. And one of the rules of the Internal Revenue Code, which has been a rule for decades in the United States, is that hospitals furnish what is known as a community benefit. If they want to be tax exempt, they've got to furnish something called a community benefit. Um, In the Affordable Care Act, Congress tightened up on the requirements that hospitals subject to this community benefit uh, standard must meet. They must engage in a public needs assessment process, and they must develop implementation strategies that show how they are going to invest in their communities based on the needs assessment. Now, the document that actually captures and hospitals tax filings, the document that actually captures how they're spending their money is called Schedule H. Schedule H was around before the 2010 amendments. It's still the schedule that not-for-profit hospitals use. You can go online and view Schedule H. You can view hospitals' tax filings. And at some point, in theory, not only will you be able to see their community health needs assessments, but 
you should be able to see their implementation strategies under standards released by the Internal Revenue Service back in 2011. So essentially what we're looking at here is a federal set of legal standards that have tightened some more, uh, require a public planning process in which community need, health need is measured, and then an investment process in which hospitals can invest in financial assistance programs, what are known as community health improvement programs, and even something called community building, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. All right. So let me ask you, um, we're going to just, uh, we have a, a, Sarah does a lot of uh, speaking on this issue. And I'm going to scroll through uh, into, we've got some slides. Again, a reminder to everyone, if you're not uh, tuned in uh, via the computer as well as the phone, you can always get the slides by asking for them at info at, at um, IHI.org. Um, I want to just ask you, of all the things um, that are going on in these new uh, rules and specifications, what would you call out as perhaps um, m- among the most meaningful uh, in terms of, you know, if when I say old world, new world here, of, of what it is well, that it, hospitals have to yeah. do? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, to to me, the most important thing um, when you get down to it is actually the implementation strategy. Of course, the needs assessment itself is very important because that's the process by which community health priorities get identified and prioritized for investment. But in the end, what people really want to know is how hospitals that have community benefit obligations are actually investing in their communities. Hospitals may be putting the vast bulk of their community benefit obligations into forgiving bad debt, uh, bills that didn't get paid, or they may be using their uh, uh, community benefit funds to um, uh, essentially offset the discounts that they give the Medicaid program for, 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 for providing services to Medicaid beneficiaries. Um, hospitals may be putting uh, some money into training a workforce, but for example, one of the things that um, people might want to know is whether hospitals actually are making investments that get services out into the community, such as support for school health services, or even taking a step further and making investments in community health improvements that actually go to the social conditions of health, such as um, removal of, of lead uh, from from older apartments, things that improve the health of the population, even if they're not health care. And so that's where the implementation strategy is so important. So, Sarah, just uh, I, I'm sure uh, most of the people who joined the call are uh, far and away up on this more than, uh, than I have been, although I've been trying to get up to speed. Where are we in the time frame of this uh, new rule going in, rules going into effect? Uh, so what would we imagine hospitals? must be doing now? Good question. Uh, the uh, planning process actually kicked off beginning in 2012, uh, and the planning process is a three-year cycle. So in theory, hospitals have spent, and it's by hospitals tax year, so um, it's not a calendar-to-calendar year uh Potentially, it may be a different cycle, but it's your 2012 tax year. 
And hospitals may be planning away. They may be busily developing their implementation strategies now. They may already have done their planning and have posted their planning documents at their website, which is what they're supposed to be doing, so that the community can see their plan. Uh, they should have been taking, uh, gathering evidence through consultation with public health experts, community members, others, um, uh, and try, you know, uh, sort of been attempting to get as much feedback as possible with an eye toward, in the same tax year, having an implementation strategy that guides their giving, shows how they're going to invest in the community, what things sort of take a second seat because they're not as high priority as the, as the top issues. And so people should be on the lookout for both the planning dimension and the implementation dimensions of the community health needs assessment requirements. Okay, that's very clear and very helpful. Last quick question, then we're going to move on to Kevin. What's been the reaction? You've been doing a lot of speaking, which, uh, and we're so thrilled to have your expertise on WIHI. What's, uh, what, what do you hear when you're out there on the stump talking about this? Well, I think people understand, but people who work in hospitals, people who, who direct, who, who lead hospitals, um, and certainly the public health community, and certainly many consumers uh, and other uh, community stakeholders understand the significance of the 2010 amendments. I think because 2012 was really the first year in which this became a serious, ongoing activity, um, everybody is sort of trying to gauge where we are with the activity, how planning is going, what the results of planning have been. We are still waiting for actual formal rules from the Internal Revenue Service. People are working under guidance issued in 2011. and so I think at this point, everybody is proceeding with sort of a cautiously optimistic wait-and-see attitude uh, to begin to um, understand how hospitals' orientations for, to the, toward their communities may begin to slowly change as the planning requirements really kick in. Okay, very good. All right, thanks, Sarah Rosenbaum. And I'm sure folks will have questions uh, pointed your way uh, in, in minutes from now. But let me now move on to uh, Kevin Barnett. Kevin, um, you um, and others have said this about you, that you perhaps have counted yourself among those voices in the wilderness for many years uh, talking about these issues. <laughs> there you are. I don't, I don't think you're in the wilderness anymore. So what, what is, <laughs> what's happened here, and what are you especially impressed by with these new rules and expectations? Well, I, I would have to put it in the... the the rules in the context of larger, uh, really, uh, global changes that are occurring in, in this field, and that is um, there, is, there is growing recognition across the board that the fee-for-service system of financing is unsustainable, and we're moving towards um, some form of shared risk and global budgeting that completely shifts the incentives from from the current one of conducting procedures and filling beds to keeping populations healthy. And the hospitals that have been uh, up, up until now more substantively engaged in their communities, partnering with diverse stakeholders and looking at ways in which to address not just the symptoms but the underlying causes of these problems are really ahead of the game. Um, uh, CMS uh, new rules on 
on readmissions was really a shot across the bow in terms of regulations um, that that um, may be followed in the not too distant future by similar kinds of penalties for um, people coming in for uh, conditions that are clearly preventable. So, so that so there's a lot of scrambling, a lot of hard work, and, and in essence, what this is challenging. Um, hospitals to do is to really step outside of their four walls and look at ways in which they engage stakeholders as a part of their core business strategy. So in, in that context, there's a need to really look at what the, uh, what the internal infrastructure is to do this work, and, um, and, and that presents hospitals with some challenges. As, as Sarah outlined some of the expectations and some of the rules, um, there is an unprecedented level of transparency now in terms of how um, we can um, access the ways that hospitals define their communities, the degree to which they have explicitly identified where health disparities are and how they're addressing those. And so, and, and in that context, um, uh, particularly given the expansion in coverage, much of that is going to be in communities, in low and moderate income communities where people are confronted with an array of obstacles to the health behaviors we're going to want them to engage in. And, in fact, the profitability of these organizations will depend on their ability to help people overcome some of the challenges, um, ranging from, you know, the, those listed on the slide here uh, that impact uh, very directly in a significant way some of our most ex uh, highest expenses in the healthcare arena in the chronic disease arena of asthma and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So, um, so it's exciting in the sense that hospitals are scrambling to to get engaged in this, but it really challenges them to look at ways in which to take a lot of smaller community benefit programs to scale. Um, how do we really mainstream these efforts to to be a central part of what we're doing? And that just that means we have to build population health capacity in our hospitals. Definitely. And um, Kevin had these, you know, everyone shared. By the way, I want to say everyone has longer slide decks that by tomorrow morning we'll all have posted to our resource page for this program of WIHI. We picked out some. And, uh, Kevin, this was kind of a community benefit 1.0, 2.0, and uh, heading into 3.0, which I guess you would start to call CHNA. And um, – Kind of what what would you say is really the what we're moving from where to where? I mean, you've started to say it, but um, certain things in here yeah. uh, uh, that have to do with collaboration and um, you know other things that need to be aligned. Well, it, it is fundamentally a geographic model where um, where a hospital um, is will need to think about how how to build a sense of shared ownership. Uh, with those with whom it currently competes, particularly in larger metropolitan areas, uh, and and look at ways in which it leverages it re its resources. And and you know this is going on to varying degrees. But for many hospitals, uh, there's a there's a much steeper uh, learning curve um, in doing this kind of work. And uh, and those that are engaged, um, not only uh, with other hospitals and with community health centers and developing. Uh, ways in which they can share data and analyze and drill down and look at ways in which to reduce, for example, preventable ED and inpatient utilization, but ways in which they're engaging those in other sectors. 
uh, is going to be absolutely central um, because we have to, well, some of these challenges we have relating to poor housing and transportation and access to food um, cannot be solved by hospitals alone, um, which means they have to begin to invest in looking at ways in which they work with these other stakeholders and ways in which we begin to weave together a variety of investments and interventions. Okay, thank um, that's, that's the exciting um, <laughs> part of what's going on, but, but it does present challenges for those who are who have up until now not really engaged in this arena. Just before I move on um, to Jean, I just want to make sure we we can underscore a certain point, and we have a nice slide up here um, titled Hospitals in the Geographic Context, but there is a big shift you referred to, which is kind of what what's the – who do you have to kind of engage with, and it really has broadened uh, outside of a very narrow scope. Is that something that's actually written right into the law? It is not, and uh, and uh, at least as originally articulated, the IRS um, the IRS uh, guidelines and rules, as uh, Sarah mentioned earlier, initially um, put a set of activities uh, under the category of community building as those outside of which uh, that could be counted by hospitals as part of their their community benefit obligations. There has since then been uh, uh, some uh, revision of that in uh, in the guidelines that indicate hospitals can make investments in this arena, that they are community benefits, that they can be documented as community benefits. But it, it, um, uh, it, it involves ways in which we may work with, for example, financial institutions who have Community Reinvestment Act obligations to invest in things such as low-income housing or child development centers or expansion of, of community health center um, infrastructure uh, and ways in which we link to those kinds of investments um, through um, the linkage to hospital interventions and or, as, as in some cases, there are some health systems that have established their own uh, social impact investment um, functions um, to help support um, this kind of development in communities. Right. We have to look at the bricks-and-mortar dimension of what creates health in our communities. It's not just about delivering services. Right. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Kevin Burnett, and I think you'll see that everybody's remarks are hopefully going to feed off of and reinforce one another. Uh, case in point, uh, Kaiser Permanente, and that's uh, one of the reasons we have Jean Noodleman here, and not only has she been very, very actively involved in what's going on with Kaiser Permanente in this community health needs area uh, in Northern Cal- California, excuse me, but Jean has been very, very active in some of these larger national collaboratives uh, and uh, lots of these folks um, are forming these amazing networks and uh, developing wonderful rich websites with lots of data. So uh, Jean, um, I really think you're sort of the illustration of what it means uh, to really have had some kind of a head start uh, on you know these changes and talk to us about what uh, KP has been doing in Northern California under your leadership. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much. Um, just to let people know, for those who may not be as familiar, Kaiser Permanente is the nation's oldest and largest uh, not-for-profit integrated healthcare delivery organization. Um, we serve people throughout nine states and D.C. and have 38 hospital facilities currently. 
And um, our mission, which you see up there, is really twofold. It's to provide high-quality, affordable health care. And explicitly, our mission is to improve the health of both our members and the communities that we serve. We think that this community health needs assessment is really an opportunity, as, as Sarah and Kevin has mentioned. And in our case, we think it's an opportunity to build on our knowledge and the work that we have done um, to do community health needs assessments, in some cases, for over a decade. And we think we have the opportunity to work with others collaboratively and to both address social determinants of health as well as to improve clinical care. Our approach, as you can see, really does uh, it focus on the health of the communities we serve with an explicit commitment to reduce health disparities. And we do so through improving a focus on improving health access, on creating healthy environments, and focusing on developing and disseminating health knowledge, which is it's a broad portfolio of approaches, and there are some examples on the right that you can see. But I will say to, again, build on what Kevin was saying, we know that the needs, as well as the resources in our communities, the needs are so great and the opportunities are so fabulous that you can't do it alone. So we have a very long history of partnership, and we do work with community health centers, public hospitals and health systems, and schools, community-based organizations, government entities, other entities who have similar vision and similar goals to really work together. And I think that this requirements creates even greater opportunities for this kind of synergy. So again, our approach builds on uh, the assets that we have, which as an organization includes um, a commitment to population health and community health improvement. And what we've done is created even new tools that we're very excited about sharing to make an impact and to improve efficiencies. And you have one up there, which I'm very fond of. <laughs> it is our attempt to try to graphically describe this kind of complicated process that is currently still in these draft notices from the IRS. And it breaks a process into three, the three big steps as we see it. The first being the collection of data and the interpretation of data both publicly available data as well as primary data that we get from talking with folks in our communities, and then identifying and prioritizing and ultimately selecting health needs, which goes down through the, the right-hand box. The outcome of that is a community health needs assessment report, which needs to be publicly available through websites and other ways. And then we're moving into, as are many other systems and, and, and uh, hospitals, the implementation strategy development phase, and it's all shown in this graphic representation. The other thing that we've done is work very hard, first within our own system and then with others across the nation, to think about how do we measure what creates, what, what, how do we measure health for a population? And as many others have done, we looked around and we thought that the work that has been done to the University of Wisconsin's county health rankings and roadmaps is just a great way to think about the causes of health and the ones that they describe, the health behaviors, clinical care, social and economic factors, and the physical environment. We agree. We think those are the sort of aspects that we should be measuring. Um, and so we've collected about 100 different indicators to have consistency across the, the nation, as well as whenever possible, we've been able to try to get those indicators to drill down to the smallest possible geography because it is really, um, it's really important as much as possible to be able to get data that helps us understand things at a sub-county level. And so as we gathered these indicators, we, th we thought it would be important to really think about which indicators are particularly powerful or predictive of health. And, and uh, Kevin may end up talking later on about hot spotting. But 
in this indica- in this uh, graphic, you'll see that we've identified what we call key drivers, which include poverty, high school graduation, and percentage of uninsured. And and in something I'll be showing you in just a minute, we've we've been able to graphically represent those. And then you can look at how they link to some of the other indicators, including health outcomes and some of the other drivers of health. So we've assembled all this data. And we've been able to look at the, at the relationship between the data points because they're not static. And this shows that you can either look at the indicators, as this shows on the left, by type, or you can look at them by the drivers, the health behaviors, physical environment, et cetera, and how they link to the health need itself, which in this case, we're showing the drivers of diabetes. And we think it's important to work with communities as well as hospitals and other institutions to make sense of the data because it leads to different interventions when you start linking what might appear to be disconnected uh, data points. Uh, so how do you do this? Well, in the old days, you would do this by making, you know, Xeroxes of, of <laughs> materials that would come to you. But now we have got the web. Okay. And so we're really excited that we were able to work with colleagues in the University of Missouri and the Center for Applied Research and Environmental Studies who've created the Community Commons, and they worked with us to create a web-based data platform that you're showing here, chna.org slash kp. And we've also been able to share this with colleagues across the nation uh, for another data platform, which we can talk about. But what this does is it it puts in one place an easy way, and it's free to the community. Anyone can sign up and use both this as well as the national platform and begin to, to look at all these data indicators as well as generate reports on demographics, on health needs, as well as develop maps to, to look at where the areas are of highest need and how the, how the distribution of different assets as well as resources look across the geography. So we think that this is a really important beginning step of um, creating something that can be used widely by many different organizations and people, individuals throughout um, really all the communities. And the last thing that I'll show you here is an example of what mapping technology can do. And as many others are aware, we we really do believe that health disparities is a critical health issue, and ending disparities is one of the most important issues that we face as a nation. And we've been able to use this graphing, um, this map technology, GIS technology, to highlight and assess data on a granular level to, again, look at connections. And on one side, you can see obesity, and you can see poverty, and you can look at what the implications are for particular communities of need, and work to collectively to develop interventions to address those needs. So, I wow. guess in summary, <laughs> yeah, whoa, how's that for a data dump? You, that's yeah, great. That's fanta- fantastic. I'm sorry, I don't want to cut you off. Go ahead. No, I just I would say that the last thing is that while we're very excited to be doing this work, um, we do think that it's extremely important to be able to work collaboratively um, to, to make sense of what we're seeing and to be able to move forward as we move into the implementation strategies. Wow. Well, Jean, thank you. And uh, I hope everyone can appreciate what it takes to sort of distill uh, all this complex work that's going on into a number of slides here and some very, very cogent remarks. uh, Thank you, Jean. And before we open things up for questions and comments, which we're just going to do in a moment, I want to give Sarah an opportunity, if there's anything that anybody has said here uh, that uh, struck uh, a chord for you in any respect, and also I wanted maybe Kevin might uh, say just another word or two about this uh, shared data portal. Uh, Sarah, anything that you've heard? Well, I would just um, note that I I think both um, Jean's explanation of what 
what the Kaiser Health System does uh, is, uh, you know, an, an incredible reflection of what the law contemplates. So this kind of um, uh, focus on overall population health, not not limited to what patients of Kaiser Permanente are using. The issue is what is the health of the community, of the service area in which Kaiser Permanente is located. And so I, I think that um, uh, her explanation gives a real flavor for what Congress had in mind uh, on the part of all hospitals. Uh, I should also note that other entities, the Catholic Health Association has done tremendous work in making resources available to um, hospitals as they enter this world of community health planning. Okay, that's great. That's a great thing to underline. Kevin, just very quickly, the CHNA, I mean, this is, I've got a, I, I asked some folks, I tried this out for the first time on WIHI, I invited some folks to, if you wanted to, email some questions ahead of time, and we did get one from um, Tom Eversole, no, I'm sorry, we got four, so, you know, we're on our way. Tom Eversole asked um, <laughs> what he wondered about reducing the administration, excuse me, administrative burden of CHNA, um, and sort of thinking about all the things uh, that hospitals hospitals uh, must be doing right now. And it seems to me partly what we're seeing uh, with uh, what what Jean and you are talking about is exactly that. Um, do you agree? Well, I, I, I think certainly the old way that we uh, have been doing assessments, um, and there have been a number of states across the country that have state statutes that have required them uh, to conduct community health needs assessments in California since 1994, and, and, and reference to the old days is, is um, uh, the, the fact that so, uh, so much of the time has been spent collecting data uh, and reconfiguring secondary data um, that uh, by the time that the groups get come together and decide what to do, they're exhausted. And uh, this CHNA.org really presents a, uh, an immense leap forward in the ability to get our hands on the broad spectrum of data. There are 7,000 layers of data available on this. And I should note we're continuing to do work on looking at ways in which to increasingly make it user-friendly for, for folks. But you can, in a very short time, um, upload uh, much of the, the data com- component that you need for the assessment, which reserves a lot more time, energy, and resources to focus on how we engage diverse community stakeholders, how we build that framework of shared ownership in the broader community, uh, and, and how we develop interventions that are truly uh, impactful and uh, mutually reinforcing among a broad group of stakeholders. So it, it really is an immensely important tool that is now available in the field. Thank you. I think it's also worth noting, um, if I could just jump in Go for ahead. a second, uh-huh. that the the support, the financing to support a good needs assessment is in itself considered to be a community benefit. So um, that is not to suggest that um, people should go wild spending money on needs assessment when there are efficiencies that can be achieved. But, on the contrary, um, yeah. but, but Congress saw this, and the IRS sees this as 
an investment in the community itself in getting outside the walls of the hospital to understand what the community's needs are. So the act of learning is it really should be seen as part of the business model of the hospital, a part of the justification for the existence of the hospital. It, it is a, a, an opportunity cost, but a very important one at a time of, as, as Kevin has noted, you know, transforming healthcare systems. So, good point. Thank you very much. Um, fabulous, and I really appreciate this. And I, I we've really uh, set up some very rich things. And I, we're going to transition now uh, to questions. Um, and uh, John, it looks like at least a few people have already found their way to chat. But do you want to just remind everybody? Yeah, in the chat window, if you're going to ask us a question, make sure that you send to all participants so your colleagues in the chat area can also see them um, and uh, and maybe get some conversation going. Thanks. All right. Thanks, John. And uh, here's a question. I think we'll just uh, take this right to you, uh, Sarah, because I know it came up in our planning conversations. What is the thought of health systems about health systems that want to conduct one regional assessment for multiple hospitals? Is this advised given the IRS appears to want one assessment per facility? Would it be okay to have a regional assessment as long as each facility has its own unique implementation strategy? Where are we on that issue? Uh, the 2011 guidance sort of leaves this as an open question to be answered. Um, clearly, what the what 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 the IRS is responding to is the fact that the law itself speaks about facility planning. Uh, so I think what the where you see the IRS trying to strike a balance um, is making sure the facilities are accountable for community benefit in their service areas, whatever they might be. But I would be I would be surprised myself, but I'm not the IRS so it really doesn't matter. Um, I would be surprised if the if when we see the formal rulemaking, the rule actually gives multi facility health systems the ability to plan together and in fact potentially allows planning across independent facilities. I think that I that the IRS has gotten the message that in this kind of exercise you want to think geographically, again, not not by the hospital's patient admission census, mm-hmm. but for geographic region. Okay, thank you very much. Kevin, uh, maybe uh, go ahead, jump in. Yep. Uh, yes, I was just going to, to to note that there has been some informal guidance provided by the IRS since this time because it has raised a, uh, an array of questions because you have, in some metropolitan areas, you may have two hospital facilities with separate EINs within the same system um, when it clearly makes more sense for them to be conducting uh, an assessment at that at that regional level. Particularly, one of the advantages of collaboration both within systems within the same region and across hospitals is the opportunity to uh, to pool resources and do more of a sub-county drill down to be able to, to really look where those health inequities are and how to begin to work together uh, more effectively. But, but it would be certainly helpful to get a more formal acknowledgement and guidance from the CE from the uh, IRS in this regard, but it, um, but that that there have been responses, and and we could certainly share uh, what some of those public um, you know, some of the public guidance that's come and out. If I could also the, jump in, we don't want to be this is yeah. this is actually a very rich question. Yeah, Jean, go ahead. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the complexities here is also um, if if different facilities 
have slightly different geographic areas that they serve. You just, I wonder if it's not possible. I've seen some some collaboratives conduct the CHNA together and then still extract some of the findings that have been done together to make sure that their their specific report captures their specific service area, which may differ from another hospital. So, right. I, so I yeah. wonder if there's a way to get the best of both worlds. Right. Well, okay. I, all they, these things are possible and desirable, but I again just want to stress. <laughs> as the lawyer on the call, that we don't have a definitive ruling out of the IRS that this is permissible. I think all signals are that they're going to move in this direction. All right. So we, right. Have, we have innovation going on and suggested tests of change on the program in the, in the true spirit. And I guess we'll, maybe the IRS will be on, on board with all of that. But uh, that's great. Um, and I, I, I love uh, the different voices that we have here. Uh, Jean, I want to ask you a question. Uh, Lyle wants to know about sort of who sort of given all the stakeholders who's in some ways in the best position to be the convener is that the hospital or the hospital system should that be no i don't i think it differs a great deal for each community and again in california we have had the opportunity to be working as hospitals together since the mid 90s so there are there may be ongoing collaboratives which don't necessarily need to have the catalyst of the needs assessment who may have worked together for many years on different issues. Um, there are many places where the public health department plays a very strong convening role. And in some places there are community-based collaboratives. So I myself, my experience has been it, it differs and it does depend on the community. Okay, very good. Kevin, anything on that? Yeah, Jean said it as okay. well as it can be said. Okay, that's really great. So then, um, in more in the again in the spirit of innovation, uh, Catherine's asking about whether it's going to be possible, possibly to do uh, kind of rotate to a smaller CHNA in rotation with a larger one. Thinking that this every three year requirement is uh, quite huge. Um, Sarah, Kevin, what do you think about that? I mean, just even in terms of a comprehensive CHNA every three years, this person is saying, Heather, is costly and time-consuming and, ironically, I guess, takes away from building important programs that meet identified need. Can we do it all? Well, I, I guess I would beg to differ. Um, uh, I don't know how you can build important programs if you don't have current information or at least reasonably current information. I don't think triennial needs assessments um, are, are an undue burden. And again, um, uh, you know, you look at the, the, the value of the tax benefit going to nonprofit institutions. I, I don't think myself, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fine for us to have our opinions, but Congress, I think if, if, if it were on the call, Congress would say that it was not acting unreasonably in, a, in its expectation that hospitals update a needs assessment every three years. My guess is that some of the state laws that already require needs assessment may be at least that frequency, if not more frequent. Uh, and, you know, the assumption is that every three years you'll do a, a needs assessment. My guess is, again, I'm not the data person on the call, but there are a lot of data uh, that are available down to the locality area. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the hospital has to um, do its own original data collection every time, but talking with communities every few years, which I think is a big part of the needs assessment. It's not so much the statistics. It's the engagement. Uh, and I don't see that as an unusually heavy obligation. 
Okay, thanks very much. Uh, really fabulous questions. Thank you. Uh, somebody's asking whether can providers under current IRS regs, can providers in a local area collaborate on a CHNA? And I, I apologize, Greg, I'm not sure uh, if your question is getting at whether or not there would sort of somehow, uh, there, there's some, some barrier to providers. I don't know if you mean competitors or do you mean whether or not it would be perceived uh, since we, we've been talking about organization by organization or system by system, um, maybe you're asking whether providers could get together and do one community health needs assessment. And I apologize if I'm not interpreting that correctly, Greg Stanton, and you can re retype your question. Uh, but I, maybe I'll just throw it out to the team here on the call. Uh, anyway, right now, I think Sarah's going to give us our sobering reality of what it says that, you know, five hospitals uh, in the Boston area are probably not going to be able to do one CHNA. Is that correct, at least right now? Well, that, you know, this is an interesting question. This goes back to the earlier question, can, do the IRS rules allow multi-facility collaboration? And I think the consensus among the three of us was that even if they don't you know, overtly allow it, everything seems to be pointing in that direction. I will say there are other considerations, and one of the interesting considerations here, which um, at least a couple of lawyers I know have raised, is whether competitors could collaborate around a needs assessment. Clearly, the way, uh, without, without running afoul of um, uh, antitrust uh, uh, issues. One of the ways in which, of course, everybody can collaborate together is something that, um, for example, Seattle King County does. There, the needs assessment is carried out for a community on a community-wide basis by the health department. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. facilities all participate in the needs assessment, but they are not the performers of the needs assessment. And in that way, you get county-level planning, adoption of community health needs is done by census tract, uh, and people sort of work off of a broader needs assessment to to, to plan their own implementation activities. And I am sure what we're going to see is that the IRS says that this is, you know, uh, this is doable. So if Boston wanted to plan for its entire community, it could. Okay, Boston. Uh, I don't know if they heard me, but, you know, okay. Yeah. Well, this your comment, um, I, I just, I'll make a segue, and, and, and Kevin, if you want to jump in, please do in just a sec. I just want to make a segue because Kim was also asking a question on the chat here about the challenges and benefits of engaging public health entities in CHNAs. Uh, Sarah just talked about a whole uh, county health department being very involved. Kim is suggesting that sometimes public health agencies can be rather slow and bureaucratic. And uh, maybe that's a, a, a sort of a, a changing uh, myth as well. But I don't know, Kevin, maybe I'll just ping that one yeah. to you. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I, look, this, this is hard work. Uh, getting out and rolling up your sleeves and engaging diverse stakeholders in the community is not, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, it, it challenges us to think in different ways than we might have if we were just doing something on our own. The bottom line is there's way too much assessment going on and not enough strategic investment and alignment. And, you know, you mentioned the health department. Yes, they're now. It's part of their accreditation that they have to conduct they have to conduct community health assessments and develop implementation plans. Gosh, that sounds an awful like 
a lot like what hospitals are expected to do mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. United Way conducts uh, community health assessments. Uh, community health centers for their Section 330 funding are conduct uh, community health assessments. Um, banks is fulfilling their CRA obligations, perform what's called a performance context, which is actually an assessment. So, so there are immense opportunities to streamline and, and connect and collaborate to do this more effectively. Um, but, but it has to go beyond the assessment. We have to go beyond doing the assessment and everybody taking their toys home. This is about how we come back together and say, what are we going to do? And we can't do everything. So how do we focus on the kinds of things? How do we leverage our resources in a way that we can actually produce measurable and sustainable impacts? That's where the focus needs to be going forward. All right. Thank you. Gene, and feel free to comment on anything that's been said. I don't know if this is an appropriate one for you or not, but there is a question here about ways to engage uh, federally qualified uh, community health centers uh, in these collaborations. And somebody actually wondered whether uh, some federal, uh, federally owned um, centers, and et cetera, were perhaps, um, I don't know, exempt, actually. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't find that question. Um, but, I got it. Yeah, I, yeah. Go ahead. I think- Talking. And actually, absolutely, uh, I, I know of several, and I'm sure Kevin knows of others, where both individual community health centers, federally qualified health centers, have been involved in, in, the, in the process, as well as representatives, at least in California, they're representatives of clinic consortia who provide support, and they're very important stakeholders in the process. They, they just have a very strong understanding of the needs of the population, as well as they have a strong commitment to working both in primary care as well as up social determinants of health. So they absolutely have been involved, and I think they're really, they make a lot of sense as partners. Okay, very, very good. Um, okay, if somebody's got a question about technology infrastructure to engage social power of this initiative, that's Ron. Um, of course, we're talking about this amazing website and tool and whatever, so I'm not quite sure if there's, um, you know, more things that could be said about technology here, but uh, either Kevin uh, or, or Gene, do you want to take that on, or should we get more information? I'm sorry, Ron Ott. Well, I'll take a quick shot at it, and in doing so, I want to note there is a, there's a terrific effort that's ongoing in the field that's being led voluntarily by a group of hospitals and health systems. There are about 40 that are engaged that are called the Health Systems Learning Group. They're working with the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships and, and, and basically have put a stake in the ground that they have to look at ways in which to transform themselves to better engage the communities, to address the determinants of health, and to begin to reduce and drive down the uh, preventable ED and inpatient utilization. In doing so, they recognize that they a big part of, of moving in that direction has to be to build the data capacity, and that means internally to have the, the geographic information system technology that enables them, for example, to map the, the utilization patterns. And then to overlay that, as Kaiser has done with their own chna.org uh, site, to overlay that on these all of these other data elements. And that's an immensely powerful way to begin to focus in geographically of where we're having a high rate of utilization that's preventable. Uh, and what are the other kinds of factors? What are the other drivers of these problems? We know that there's only so much we can do to reduce these these challenges, these health problems with clinical services. This takes us to what else can
can be done and who do we need to partner with. So, so building that internal data capacity um, uh, is, is critical, and the Health Systems Learning Group is looking at ways in which to do that. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of running to catch up uh, and build this capacity among um, hospitals and health systems around the country, but, but many are really beginning to step up and take that on. All right, sounds good. And uh, I'm sorry if you said this because I had to look the other way. I have to do a lot of multitasking in this seat here. Uh, Kevin, there is an event coming up, right, in early April in, in Washington. Did you mention that? Yes, yeah. yes. These uh, uh, group of the CEOs from these systems are meeting uh, at the White House to to basic to put forward basically a, a charge of activities of, of what they're committed to, uh, and to indicate their strong support for the administration's movement and implementation of ACA. Okay, very good. Thanks. Uh, don't go anywhere, everyone. We're, we've just got about five more minutes. I want to make sure John uh, gets a mention in here of uh, some upcoming IHI program, and then we'll uh, kind of go around the horn here with some uh, final remarks. John? Yeah, thanks, Madge. Uh, we talked a lot today about the important role communities play in improving health, and nowhere that more evident than in communities that follow the framework of the IHI triple aim to achieve better health with better care and at lower cost. If your organization is transitioning to new payment models, becoming an ACO, or creating coalitions to improve your community's health, the IHI can help you develop the tools and strategies to succeed as a member of the triple aim improvement community. A 12-month learning collaborative that starts in September of 2013, the IHI triple aim improvement community convenes vibrant learning communities to build a result-oriented strategy and a portfolio of projects designed to achieve the goals of the IHI Triple Aim, as well as supporting a network of leaders to build momentum and ensure execution going forward. If you'd like to set up a conversation with one of our Triple Aim experts to talk more about joining the collaborative, please contact Triple Aim at IHI.org. All right, Triple Aim at IHI.org. Very germane to what we're discussing. All right, well, listen, I want to um, – I, I, there's a couple more questions, and then we'll go around the horn here and sort of, you know, get some watch this space um, <laughs> kinds of comments from our guests. Desiree is asking, um, is it ideal to focus on a small geographic area and fewer needs or a larger geographic area and several needs? Um, and um, I, I guess, I don't know, that's a... Yeah, is, Jean, go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I think she's really identified a, a, a challenge that we certainly face at a local level because there are a lot of issues and um, I would suggest if we want to try to see change, then you really need to focus on a, few, on a smaller set of issues and rally many different parts of the community to leverage the resources to see change. If you focus on, on a more disparate, larger amount of issues, then likely you will be able to only touch them in sort of a light way. Okay. So it is a trade-off because I think I can really understand community members and others not being, um, you know, being concerned if their issue is not one that is identified to be focused on. All right. So, Jean, and while I have you, uh, maybe because we're going to do just some wrap-up remarks quickly, um, what should we be kind of paying attention to in terms of some of um, uh, your and KP's next moves in, in this uh, space? I know there are some challenges ahead. Anything in particular you might call out? Well, I will acknowledge that we're doing the best we can uh, in a, without having final guidance. So we're, we're trying to work very diligently to do something that is meaningful and sustainable and that will change over time. I think you'll see our website and the national website continue to evolve as we move from assessment to implementation and uh, look at the possibility of including uh, additional resources as community members move forward. 
Uh, I think I think measurement is going to be a big challenge. How do we know we're making progress? So I, can, I think I'll leave you with that. Okay, very good, Jean. So wonderful to have had you today, Kevin. Uh, what I know you mentioned uh, looking ahead to this big meeting in Washington. Anything else uh, we should be on the lookout for? Well, I'd, I made broad reference to the potential role of financial institutions. We've uh, been engaged with the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and are looking at the potential for convening a series of meetings around the country, uh, That uh, meetings that may typically be hosted by the regional Federal Reserve Banks uh, that bring together hospitals, health systems, payers, public health, and financial institutions to really look at ways in which they can come together and do the kind of drill down that Gene's talking about. Uh, we have to we have to look at ways in which to focus and leverage our resources if we're going to have an impact. And that, that means stepping back from an approach that we've often taken previously, which is spreading our resources over broad geographic areas and, and issues. Huh. There are some tough decisions that we have to make. All right. Well, thank you very, very much. I find that so intriguing, Banks, with uh, their own requirements in terms of community uh, investment and relationship. All right, Sarah, last word's going to go to you. What what should we maybe be on the lookout when? It sounds like uh, there are rules and then there's final rules and uh, kind of sense of timeline and what, what, what space to watch. All right. Isn't the law wonderful? It's just the gift that keeps on giving here. Um, so I would just note that the IRS has indicated that um, rules probably will be forthcoming, I would think, by uh, by summer on community benefit issues. And uh, we maintain a special running blog uh, on the implementation of the Affordable Care Act known as healthreformgps.org. Oh. All right. We'll get that in uh, there. People, if people want to sort of stay up to date with the latest in health reform implementation, um, that's a great site. And we will be, of course, posting an explanation of the proposed rules when they come. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sarah. Really, I'm so thrilled that you were a part of this today. Um, okay. Well, listen, I, you know, I, we've had a fabulous discussion. If you feel like migrating over to IHI's Facebook page, uh, Jane Rossner has been listening in, uh, one of our colleagues here and she might post some comments and you're welcome to as well and as I mentioned next up on WHI on April 4th we're going to continue this discussion some continuity here with community health needs assessments and in this uh, case we're going to look at lessons out of North Carolina with a really really impressive uh, coalition that's been working hard there so I hope you'll tune into that and the information about that program is now live on IHI.org and a reminder as John always tries to uh, also reinforce, you can download the chat uh, when you log off the show today. Any slides that we uh, we uh, shared, plus longer slide decks that we'll have up there by tomorrow morning. And we would appreciate it if you fill out the brief survey that we have in there because we're always trying to improve the program. If you were tuned in by phone only today, just ask for all these materials at info at IHI.org. And a, re- and a reminder that you can uh, find the resources by tomorrow morning and check us out on iTunes. The people who 
help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, and Matt Morrison, our Northeastern Co-op, Nicole Wells. We have some sort of fun original music. Uh, we had some fun photos from John Gothier at the start of the show. We went to the New York Public Library, and it is my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. And I want to say thank you to Kevin Barnett, Jean Noodleman, and Sarah Rosenbaum for their time today and for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Happy spring and good day.